0: Amy dropped me off at the airport in Nashville, and I went inside, and as I was waiting for my plane, I saw Leon Russell in there, and I nerded out pretty good on that, but I I behaved myself, and I just uh, left him alone and admired him from afar. But I flew to Heathrow in London, and my buddy Andy Washington picked me up at Heathrow Airport and dropped me off at my first gig at South End on Sea. It was great to be able to see Andy again. Had a really good gig in South End on Sea, some nice people. I've never been there before, so it was nice to be there. The next morning I took a walk along the along the Thames River and saw the world's longest pier. I guess it's supposedly haunted by the ghost of a woman wearing a black dress who will walk up and down the pier at night. That made me think, why is it always a woman in a black dress? You never hear about a ghost wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt. But that's just me. So I went on up to Newcastle. but a great gig. It's always a great gig in Newcastle. So far it's the best gig of the year I've done. And I got to see my buddy Graham Anderson who's the man who brought me over for the very first time to play in the UK many moons ago. Got to see so many friends of mine, so many nice folks that I always look forward to seeing. And then I headed on over to Liverpool. Didn't have much downtime in Liverpool, but I had a very, very fun fun gig. Met some folks who listened to this show at every one of these gigs, but particularly at the Liverpool gig, and people said a lot of nice things. It's always great when you guys come up and say hey to me and say that you enjoy the show. I get a big kick out of that. Before the gig I walked across the street and went into this little dive called the Cavern Club. Somebody told me that way back when there used to be four local guys that played in the house band there and they were pretty good at playing some Carl Perkins covers. I wanted to go see where that took place. But the next day I took off and ended up up in Cumbria. Went on up to to Hale kind of out in the middle of nowhere and that's where I am right now. Had a really nice gig in Hale, saw some nice folks. It's the second time I've been there. I tried to befriend some sheep along the roadway as I was crossing a mountaintop but they wouldn't come up to me and that's probably smart. As I speak to you right now I'm sitting in a 300 year old barn in Hale. It just seemed like the perfect place to to address you guys but I'm looking forward to gigs this week in Sheffield, Murray, which is a suburb of Manchester, Wreath, and Brosley, and far beyond. And I really hope to see you guys at the gigs. Hi, friends, I'm Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in a 300 year old barn in Hale, England. This is a personal journal, this is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter there's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Peter Case. Peter is a singer and a songwriter, and you can find out everything you need to know about Peter at PeterCase.com. When I first started doing this show a couple years ago, I made a list of people that I hope to have on one day, and Peter was on that list. It was great to be able to have him on I'd met Peter quite a few years back. We played a gig together in Milwaukee, and he was just really open and warm and honest about a lot of things, and I I appreciated that. It was a very refreshing thing because it's not always the way it goes down. Peter's one of my favorite songwriters. The first time I ever heard Poor Old Tom, it just blew me away. I listened to it about five times in a row, and it's still one of my favorite songs. If you've never heard that, you really need to give it a listen. But I met up with Peter. He played a gig at the Basement East in uh, East Nashville with Kevin Kenny. And then afterwards, uh, we headed over to his hotel room and hung out for a bit. And he was nice enough to to talk on these microphones and share some stories. And then after that, we went over to Waffle House. And we ate together very, very late into the evening. So with that in mind, here's Peter Hayes.
1: Um, in Buffalo, it was very popular. So I, uh, the first autograph, I've only gotten two autographs in my life. And one of them is for Carl Perkins. I'm a huge fan of Carl Perkins. And the other one's for Ilio DiPaolo. Do you know who Ilio DiPaolo is? He was a wrestler, a uh, professional wrestler out of Buffalo. And uh, he had a huge, a huge Italian following and wrestled on the same circuit at the time when all those guys were coming in like uh, – uh, I'm trying to think who
0: came in, you like know, like Bruno the, San Martino, Bruno San
1: Martino, the beast, uh, uh, you know, all those guys. And so he was on that circuit, and so it was at a 50 mile bike race that they had in Hamburg around 1963, maybe, or something like that. I'm like, oh, it's really at Apollo, you know, and I went up and got his autograph on it. And he, I said, can I have your autograph? And he pulled out a car to him, like in a, you know, getting ready to put a half Nelson on you, and he uh, <laughs> signed it for me and gave it to me. A weird thing about that autograph is that he died on the exact spot where he gave me the autograph, like, about 30 years later. He was crossing the street at the exact spot and got run over by a car. I mean, it was a, really a, kind of a traumatic for me. I mean, it was just weird, you know. It was just like, oh, my God. We got in Hamburg, New York on Highway 62. Strangely enough, that's the name of my new album Highway 62, and, like, that was on. As Highway 62 goes through the town of Hamburg, New York, it was right there, like, where it happened. The Chic. uh, uh... I remember these guys, like they were like the farm bro, the farm boys or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> and they'd wear like cut-off jeans. And then uh, 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 the hangman was just starting to come around, dick the bruiser. But it was more the crusher was really popular. You know, you watch bowling and you watch wrestling. It was, you know, in polka, you know, they'd have a polka show. I mean, you know, these are the things that are like only on, you know, that you're really into in Buffalo. Yeah, so I was kind of into it, you know. We, we were fans, you know. I mean every so often I you know turn it on again, you know. It's changed a lot but uh you know, it's still got some great lines and stuff, you know. You know, the old, you know, I taught you everything you know, but I didn't teach you everything I know. <laughs> you know, <that>, like <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know. Uh you know, like you know, or like now they got the like surreal now, you know, it's like more like, you know, Beckett or something, like the there's a cage over the ring and then like one guy's trying to climb climb out you know, on a ladder, you know? <laughs> you know. He's got a ladder hidden underneath, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's very surrealistic. I think the first time I met Towns was right after I went solo and I was playing It's kind of sad because I was playing at McCabe's. Like, here's the thing about Towns, man. It's, like, so weird is that uh, I was a big Towns fan, but the person that turned me on to Towns was from my hometown, and it's Gurf Morlix. And so... We all grew up together in the same town, like, like playing in bands parallel to each other. The first person I ever saw play electric music was Gurf Morlix, with my friend, Mike Bannister, that I just told you about, that we drove south, was playing drums, and this guy I still play every year with in Buffalo, Mark Winsick. And Gurf plays with Mark and, the band, and Jim Whitford there in Buffalo, too. We all are still friends, you know? So Gurf went south and I went west. I went to San Francisco to like get in on things, and Gurf went down to Key West with a bunch of guys. And fell in, I guess, with your, like, I didn't know the whole story. I didn't see him for 10 years. And the next time I see him, the Plimsolls are playing the Agora in Houston. And it's like 81 or 80 or something. And uh, Gerf comes to the show. It's like, hey, man, I haven't seen you for, like, what's going on, man? He goes, well, you know, and playing down in Houston, man. And uh, um, uh, I've been playing with this guy that, like, gets drunk and sings in tongues. And his name's Towns Van Zandt. And I'm playing with this other guy named Blaze Foley. And these two guys, and I go, oh, really, man? I know That sounds pretty wild. And he gave me a, um, you know, so I got those records. Um, Towns, and we had a Blaze at the um, Austin Outhouse. And then we had an um, Eric Taylor record. We had a, uh, you know, I had all those records, like, you know, very early on and, like, understanding things. So that's how I got turned on to Towns. And I loved Towns. And then I would notice that, like, every time Towns came to L.A., like, there'd be, like, 50 people there. But, like, he never, ever got any press. Ever or radio ever, and now of course, you know, full page stories, and it's all about town you know, how many records he sold, and like the LA Times, like essays, and you know, but like back at the time, there was no support. And uh, so I'm playing McCabe's, and I was coming out of a rock and roll band, so I'm playing my solo shows, and the place is packed for two shows. And the and John Chalou comes up to me and says, uh, Can I go? Towns is across the street, staying at the motel, he's playing here on Sunday or playing here tomorrow. And, you know, we wanna see if we can you know, pick up the ticket sales a little bit. Do you mind if Towns comes over and plays in your set? So he came over, they will obviously had woken him up, he's barefoot. He comes in and he's barefoot, he's got his guitar and he comes out for my audience Had would never seen him before and he played poncho on lefty and pretty much blew the place away, you know. So that's when I met Towns and we talked and stuff. So then uh, I we both knew this uh, a guy a friend of mine is this guy, Hobart Taylor. Do you know who that is? Hobart's from Houston. And uh, I was a good friend of Townsend, Lucinda. And, like, I'd met Lucinda back around then, too, before that, actually. Right around then, when Lucinda first came out from, uh, I guess, Houston, maybe, or maybe here, 84. And she came out to L.A. And that guy, Bannister, that I was telling you about, somehow got on her wavelength and introduced me and Bannister, Gurf. Victoria Williams and this guy Warren Tornado Klein, who's like a uh, used to be in a fraternity and played with Little George and stuff. But we had a band called the Incredibly Strung Out Band, and so we only played gigs like we didn't play clubs. We just played like played in, this, in Bannister's car or drove over to people's houses. It was like basically like a driving and drinking band, you know. And um, and that's when we met Lucinda. Like that band actually got a gig at like Al's Bar, and so you know um, we met Lucinda that night, and then Gurp started playing with her after that. So that was another connection, and, and that same guy that you know, um, put, hooked us all up with, 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 you know, with Bannister, but Hobart Taylor, and so he was a, um, you know, a, a big influence on a lot of people, putting people together. He was a really far-out guy, but he, he was a friend of Towns. I mean, I used to go see Towns play a lot, you know. Every time I got an opportunity, you know, I didn't talk to him a whole lot. I talked to him on the phone, you know, one time when he was with Hobart. We had a conversation about some crazy shit. And, uh, but you know, I wasn't real close to Towns, but I was a big admirer. The best I ever saw Towns play, I saw Towns play quite a number of times. And the best I used to see him play would be when he was playing with Guy. And The two of them together would be like, at McCabe's I saw them a number, a couple of times. And they were really kind of dynamic when they played there. And they kind of were waking each other up. Other times I would see Towns, and I love Towns, but I was I saw Towns play at McCabe's. One time it was like as hot and humid as it is today. You know, like, it's like 103 with, high, high, you know, 80% humidity or something. It was like that in L.A. And we're all, like, the 50 people are there watching Towns playing. he comes out and he opens up with, you know, A minor ballad. And then he goes to, like, an E minor ballad. And then he plays, like, a, you know, an A minor dirge. And then he plays, like, a, you know, a D minor ballad. I mean, it just went on and on like that. You know, it was very slow and very intense. And the shows could be like that. But when he was with Guy, he tended to get into the more of that... He had that way of playing, Um, he had like kind of a bow diddly kind of stroke that he would use, like on Who Do You Love, and he would also use it on like Ain't Leaving Your Love and stuff like that. It was a real cool, um, almost kind of like influenced by, uh, you know, Mexican guitar playing, like where you're doing a backhoe on the, um, coming up on like notes two, and it was real cool the way he used to rock on the guitar, and uh, surprisingly he could rock pretty good, you know, but yeah, so... that's about all I know about him. I mean, I thought he was great. You know, Tobar told me a lot of things about him, but I never... I didn't really get a whole lot of... I've heard a lot of all the same story. you've heard. You know, I, I was a bit. You know, I'm not really, like, the most... Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of stupid or something, because, like, I, I don't really do make a lot of good career moves. And so... Uh, <laughs> and quite the opposite, really. And, uh, you know, um, but I've just try to be myself, but when I was in the Plimsolls, I got a call from, I was being booked by this company called Triad, so they called me up and they wanted to know if I would come in and talk with this filmmaker, uh, Martin Scorsese, and uh, you know, I guessed I would. So I went down there and they put us in a conference room and I sat in there for about two and a half hours with him, and we just talked and talked and talked. He was like a real super interesting guy, you know, and I'd seen a lot of his films. And we had a really long conversation and then finally, like. He asked me, like, you know, had I ever wanted to be an actor? And I just told him no. It was true. Then that was sort of the end of it, you know. But, I mean, I could have said, yeah, I've always wanted to be an actor. And Like, he was looking for guys that would be disciples in The Last Temptation of Christ. And he figured that rock guys, like guys that have been in bands, knew, know what it's like to go be a disciple in the, in the name of an idea for no money. Like, you're just going out because you believe in it. And, like, he figured that the guys who followed Jesus were guys who just, like, believed in it and, like, would be very – like, a rock band guy would know how to, like, act in that situation, which I think is probably true. And we talked about that that day, you know. And, like, I – and, you know, we had a lot to say about it, but I just didn't uh, nail down the gig. So uh, I just said, no, I never – and then I went into a rap. I said, well, you know, music is, like, just about – you know, it's probably not even – like, I don't even necessarily think it's true anymore. But, like, at the time, I thought music's just totally about being yourself, like, I don't like rock movies because they, they're always a guy trying to not be himself. I want to want, like, the thing I like about Bob Dylan, like, back then they didn't have the idea that Bob Dylan's always acting, you know what I mean, necessarily. I hadn't picked up on that yet, but, you know, which I don't know if it's even true, you know. I mean, everybody's an actor, you know. The Ramones were actors, you know. But, like, were they, were, you know, there's, like, a, it's a weird fine line, but, like, you know, there is something about, like. There's something different between, in my opinion, about it, you know, and uh, I'm not really, you know, like the the book uh, An Actor Prepares by Stanislavski, you know, which a lot of musical people use, you know. It was recommended, like, for Roger McGuinn, and he read it. and I just read, uh, Mick Jones read it. And a lot of people read it, and uh, it's a great book, and it was created by Stanislavski. The method that they used in movies was created for singers in Russia. It wasn't even, it was created for musical, musical, th- theater which isn't like music like Neil Simon in Russia it's like probably more dark and you know horrifying but you know but but you know but they created that thing so that it would be extremely convincing you know I didn't really understand that all yet I just knew that like you had to like to really get you had to get in touch with something and just really come from a real place you know and that's what made the songs real you know like it's a lot more complicated than that but that's where I was at at that time and so like, I, you know I could have you know if I was smart which I'm not I would have said, yeah, I want to be in the movie. You know, I've always wanted to be an actor. And he would have, I think he would have put me in it. He wanted to try me out anyhow. You know, he seemed like he was, we had a long talk. We talked about everything. You know, mooks and all sorts of stuff. You know, we went on and on and on. But, you know, that was what happened with that. So, I, you know, I don't know. I've had a lot of different things like that in my life where I could have done the, the smart thing. but <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. Like I came from singing on the streets. So like my first dream, like my heroes when I was a kid, are blues singers and poets. You know, ever since I was really little, you know my singers were like you know you know, Lighten Hopkins, you know Muddy Waters, Mississippi John Hurt, you know guys like that. You know there, there weren't like there wasn't the huge menu of those guys that you have now either. Like like you know you would find out about one at a time. You know. And then you would get like a compilation, like uh, a blues compilation, uh, like one of those, Oliver, what's that guy's name? Uh, Paul Oliver, you know, blues compilation. And it would have like one track by Blind Lemon Jefferson, one track, you know. And like, so you'd be into all those guys, but you'd only know like one song by each guy. And then, um, and I was super into it. And then, uh, you know, I just love, I, I saw Lightning play in, uh, when I was 16. And I saw have Van Ronk play. Yeah, Van Ronk came and played at a, in the snow. In March, like you, you can probably dig this now that you're like a touring musician, like somebody booked him outdoors in Buffalo in March at, <laughs> at Buff State, right? And it's like freezing out there, man, you know. And he's sitting up there in a the chair and doing his show, you know. And like we went to it, you know. And, like there were some pe- there were people there at it, but it was like snow piled up all around the stage and stuff. He's wearing like a you know wearing a sheepskin lined jacket, but he looked cold, man. And he's up there finger picking, but you know he was very impressive, and so I loved him, you know. And we had Van Rock Records. We had that one with Chicken is Nice and all that stuff. And um, we had a Memphis Slim record. You know, we just had a few of these records. You know, John Hurt Today. Reverend Gary Davis. He came along for me later. Reverend Gary Davis I didn't get till I got to San Francisco. And I fell in with um, Michael Wilhelm from the Charlatans. You know, I wanted to go to San Francisco and like get involved with like the first psychedelic, you know, like did get involved with the psychedelic rock and roll movement, but like it didn't exist. And then uh, any more. But then all of a sudden I'm out playing on the street and I meet Mike Wilhelm and he's like started the first band with Dan Hicks, like the charlatans. So he liked me cause I was playing like all teenage blues about death. You know, like I said, like I said, it was like basically like Bob Dylan's first album plus a few more songs about death.
0: And, uh, you know, it's <laughs> the reason I was like
1: so obsessed with death. Cause I was also into all these like, you know, you know, into p- poetry. I was sort of really into, uh, you know, Ginsburg. And uh, I met Ginsburg when I was just a kid at a, Buffalo literary party. Buffalo was like a literary center for like the Beats, like for Charles Olson and uh, Gregory Corso and uh, all taught there. You know this really great guy named John Wieners. We went out and scored drugs for uh, for Allen Ginsberg and the whole party. Me and my pal, you know, and like you know and this kind of shit. You know, put you in just pot and like in hash or something. Yeah, I did. Well, I'll tell you a better thing. Like, so I met him at that party. We were just kids, but I was super into, like, these poets and, like, that stuff. You'd have those little City Lights books, you know, and Ferlinghetti's first book. And on Sunday, sometimes there'd be, like, weird shows on public television, like, you know, you know, enacting, you know, Ferlinghetti, you know, Coney Island of the Mind, or, you know, Marshall McLuhan would be rapping. But all with, like, super psychedelic, you know, common, you know, visuals. And, you know, I really got into all that kind of stuff. And the movie Chapakwa was a big influence by Conrad Rooks, you know, and we these were the few things, and then, and then finally, like, don't look back. You know, it's like, oh my god, you know, and uh, don't look back didn't come out though. It's '67, I don't think. And we went and saw that at the Studio Arena Theater in Buffalo, and I like, you know, it's just like, wow, and it really blew us away, of course. And then so, you know, I was already into Dylan though. I got into that, um, believe it or not. My mother turned me on to Bob Dylan. She came home from driving my sister to college. Which was over halfway across the state. She goes, "I just heard this guy on the radio singing, you know, you know." She kind of had it wrong, you know. But I'm like Bob Dylan, and she's like, "Yeah," and a uh, Tambourine Man or something like that. I'm like, "Yeah, that's Bob Dylan, ma," you know. Like I knew who it was, but then uh, we get, and she bought the record because I didn't have the native records. She came home with bringing it all back home. We're like, "Oh my god, this must have been six, late '65 or early '66." I think it, my sister was going to college. It must have been '65 fantastic you know it's like we got into that and then my sister started she was 10 years older me so she was like explaining you know what the gates of eden meant (laughs) you know i said I already you know my sister's been trying to calm me and i strangely enough with poets and blues guys as my heroes i went to college in san francisco to get and be part of that and the advantage of that like i love the beatles and the stones too and dylan but but and especially dylan but like definitely the stones and the beatles as well you know i love that and I love garage rock, too. But, like, I, I really dug folk singers, you know. I dug poets, you know. I just like talking. I come from a family, like, like things just happen so people can tell the story, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, like, kind of, you know, the time the dog ate the lasagna kind of stuff, you know. And, like, you know, the family, my mother loved to talk. And, you know, everybody with in my family, like, they're yakkers. you know. And, like, and they liked poetry, too. Like, you know, and they like writing and Shakespeare and all, you know, stuff like that. So I was influenced by all that. And then... uh when we got out there, um, I used to play on the street like every day and night. I would play on the, across, right across from City Lights. I would play on the corner of Broadway and Columbus. That was sort of the front line of my war on poverty for like, you know, a couple of years was the corner of Broadway and Columbus, you know. And we would just, and I had a street band that played out there that we called The Frozen Chosen. There's a book I wrote about it. I don't know if you've ever seen it. We'd be playing out there, and then one night this guy comes walking, like straight from out of City Lights, comes walking over, and it's like, you know, Hey, my name's Alan. You guys mind if, you know, what's your name? You know, I'm like, Peter, this is Danny. And he goes, you mind if I sit in, you know? And like, like we knew who he was, you know? No, No, man, you know, sit in with us. He goes, can you guys play some country blues? And so, yeah, we can play some country blues. So we start playing this blues stuff. And he stood there. Right in the, like the little like right on the very corner across the street from Broadway and Columbus, if you look at it that doorway's still there except it's a different kind of it used to be like a bank or something, but now it's like a restaurant, so you can't stand there but back then there was like these two like a little stage and we we stood right there, and Ginsburg stood right there with us, and we played out there for like a really long time, and like he would improv was improvising a song and it was like. Which yeah, I think ended up being published, but like it went on and on and on. It was like, stay away from the White House. It'll make you go insane. Stay away from, you know, Wall Street. You know, you'll, you'll you know, you'll, you know, you know. And then, and, and it just went on and on and on. And he's just like singing the song. Like me and my friend Danny, Crazy Horse Danny, were like looking at each other like, wow, I can't believe we're out here jamming with Ginsburg, you know. And so we're playing, and uh, people are going down the street, you know, like tourists with white shoes, but also, like, you know, strippers going over to the Condor Club in their fur coats and, uh, you know, uh, pimps and, like, uh, guys out of the Swiss American Hotel, which was like a hotbed of, like, drug addicts and alcoholics, and, like, cops are walking by. Nobody recognized him. And he's, like, the most famous poet in America. But we just stood out. I don't think they recognized him. So we just sat out there and jammed with him all night. Then a couple days later, like, we were walking down the street, and, like, uh we were going to go over to the Goodwill or the Salvation Army, I guess it was. I can't remember which. And uh, we're going over there, and this, like, micro bus pulls up, you know. And uh, Peter Olovsky was driving, it, and Ginsburg like, hey, you guys need a ride, you know. Yeah, sure. So we get in with him and, like, go driving around San Francisco, and he drives us where we're going, and we have, like, a big rap with him and all this stuff. So it was really fun. He was a very encouraging person. You know, I'm amazed by how many people met Ginsburg that I know. Like, you know, like, he he reached out to a lot of people, you know. Um, that were doing art and music and poetry. He really did. And he made you somehow feel like the top connected with the bottom. We were on the bottom, man. You couldn't get below. (laughs) Like, we were the least desirable street act. You know what I mean? We were like a rock and roll, blues street act that, like, you know, nobody really had, you know, any time for. And he came out and hung with us. And then I, I hit the road. I went out hitchhiking. And my pal Danny... Went and played with Alan. Actually, I went to Portland and came back. And when I came back, Danny was playing at the community theater in Berkeley with Alan. There's actually a picture of it in the book of letters from uh, Gary Snyder to Alan Ginsberg. Their book of letters. If you look at it, there's a picture of the Berkeley community theater gig. And you can see Danny. They don't actually give him credit, but he's there in the picture, like down on the ground with a guitar backing up Alan. And I went to that gig. It was the day I got back, I went to it. And like, like here we are with Ginsburg, man, you know. And like Ginsburg would drop names. She's like right around we're like, He's like, how do you guys keep your voices together out here on the street? We're like, well, you know, we like, you know, we drink a little whiskey and like, you know, like some honey, you know. And he's like, well, Dylan says that, uh we're like, <laughs> Dylan, you know. Like, <laughs> like, you know, Dylan likes honey and lemon or something like that, you know. And, uh, you know, he's like dropping that he knows Dylan. We're like, he knows Dylan. You know, like, going crazy, you know. So so he was impressive, though, you know. I mean, I always liked him. Funnily enough, strangely enough, um, like, I used to go, like, City Lights was super welcoming to me when I was a kid. So I read my, I got my, I I didn't go to high school, okay. I dropped out after, um, I finished ninth grade and dropped out during 10th and moved out, basically. And I got a little bit of college education after getting a GED, but not really much. And then I went out there, and like when the streets were slow or when it was the daytime or dinner hour or something, I would go into City Lights and they would let me just come in and read. And like I, I would go down in the basement, I read everything from Martin Buber to the the travels of Marco Polo to like, you know, Shakespeare to like interviews with Dylan and some weird books or to like, you know, that big Stevens, um, what's that name of that guy that wrote that big book about Dylan's uh, uh, Hasidic, you know, uh, Jewish influence? It was a great book. And, you know, just all these things, like, you know, in history, and, like, you could just read anything you wanted to in there. And then finally, I started climbing up above the uh, – at the cash register at City Lights, there was a stairway that goes up, and I would go up there, and and, uh, and I would read, and, and sometimes I'd be really sleepy, and I'd fall asleep in there because I was living on the street. So I would fall asleep in there, and they would just let me sleep, and I would wake up and go out and play on the street. So anyhow, this went on for quite a while. And then it was the 60th anniversary of City Lights, and when I go out there with my friend Ron, and I, and, uh, I buy that new Giddy book, Time of Useful Consciousness. And I go upstairs, and i look around. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's Giddy! He's got the door open to the office, and he's pouring people champagne, like shots of champagne, to celebrate the 60 years, you know. And it was so cool. And he, he's like 92, I think, and like really together, you know. And I went up to him. And I'm like, you know, I, I just want to say, you know, uh, thank you. You know, I, I came here as a teenager and I told you, know, everything I just told you, you know, I, I've lived in the store and I, you know, I used to go up there and even sleep up there above the, um, you know, I pass, I'd pass out reading books up there above the, uh, cash register. He goes, ah, oh, yes, the science fiction room. He goes, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not there anymore, you know, but he remembered it, you know, cause I remember being in there and reading Harlan Ellison. I have no mouth and I must scream, you know, reading that in there, which is a really sick book. But, uh, so that was great. It was a really big part of my education. And those guys were there. Corso was there. I'll tell you who else was there were a lot of like unknown beats. Like guys that you, like, you know, oh, I'll tell you who was there. Like one of the first people I met was um, Bob Kaufman. Bob, you should find out about Bob Kaufman because Bob Kaufman is like one of the g- greatest of all the poets. He was, they called, they called him the American Rimbaud in France. And he's like got four books, Cranial Guitar, um, The Abominist Manifesto. There's a couple other ones. And he's, really great but when president kennedy was assassinated bob kaufman took a vow of silence that continued for 10 years so i met him like right before he came out of silence and then after he left silence and he you know he's like he's an african-american uh genius poet that you know jazz poet in many ways beyond anybody else. i mean his his ability to like create these like i call them reversals like he uh like just has like this twist words insanely, man. You should check out some of his stuff. You can see it online. You know, uh, some of it. He's got this thing about Hollywood that like just sinks Hollywood. Like and so he's just such a genius Bob Cobb. But he was there just hanging out, drinking in, in the coffee gallery, and uh, Corso would just be wandering around, living in the residence hotels and like being Corso. I guess yeah, I didn't really know him, but there was these other guys. And you would go. I used to buy uh, Codeine's, uh fours from these guys to get stoned. You know like an idiot kid and he'd be like this old guy with like hardly anything you know, I don't know yeah we would you know he'd be sitting up in his like residence hotel room like paying him 50 cents a piece for these pills. he'd be like yeah we used to go down to the, you know peyote rituals with the Hopis you, know, <laughs> you know incredible you know like probably a friend of like Harry Smith's or something you know and so he, uh, it was really interesting there was a number of people like that um, all still in North Beach at that time and then there was a huge poetry movement again I left town in 77 so I missed the huge renaissance of poetry that happened in San Francisco again. When, when Kaufman started writing again, and when Jack Hirschman and all those people um, uh, started, all started writing, uh, You know, they, there was a huge poetry,
0: poetry movement in uh, the late 70s, early 80s and so I wanna say we met, I don't know how long ago, it was 10 or 12 years I ago? I really don't
1: know either, but it was at the Bremen Cafe in Milwaukee yeah. And we were sharing a club gig where we each played a couple sets of, the way I remember it.
0: I, I was opening up for you. I remember we sat out on the steps for an hour or so earlier in the day, and you were just really, really cool. Oh, and good. Uh, I, it seemed like you hadn't had. It, it seemed like maybe you hadn't had the best week, and you were really honest about it, and not uh, bitter about it or whatever. <laughs> and and people, you know, we meet people in music that aren't that real sometimes. But I really appreciated. that.
1: Oh well, cool, man. Thanks for saying so. You know what? You know what I remember about that gig is that was like, like that of that week. Like that was the good gig. (laughs) That's what kind of week that was. And I really enjoyed meeting you and and hearing your music and talking to you there. And like you know, and that was and that did make the gig like really great. And uh, Bremen Cafe. I still wonder what's going on over at the Bremen every once in a while. The Bremen Cafe. I meet people that were at that gig. Had a good time. I liked that Bremen Cafe. Did you ever love, go back?
0: Yeah, I did. I love Milwaukee and that yeah, River West me. neighborhood. Yeah. I, you could talk me into living there if I had to. You know? Yeah. I don't say that about many places. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it. Well, I appreciate you inviting right, me man. over here to the hotel room. To you. It's good to chat with you. I uh, Maybe we should go get some Waffle House or something.
1: Yeah, I'm going to see if I can get a hold Maybe you can give me a run. Let me see if, I can, if those guys actually ever made it over there.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Peter for meeting up with me at a hotel room in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Peter at PeterCase.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment... Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.